You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on March 10th, 2023. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. And I see a variety of questions here. Um, okay, there's a question here from Des. Suppose I wanted to store digital data in a way that would be accessible to archaeologists 10,000 years in the future. How can I achieve this? I'm suggesting thin aluminum or titanium punch cards. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay, there's an interesting problem. So, you know, how does one communicate things across large periods of time? It's something where we can get some sense from looking at archaeological history going back 4,000 years, maybe 10,000 years, maybe a little bit longer. And the main conclusion is it's really hard. It's something where there are a couple of issues. One is the thing that you are uh, putting data into something that will survive. And another is, will anybody understand what the data means or even that it is data? So let's talk first of all about what survives. You know, rock survives for a really long time. Stone survives for a really long time. The... Uh, there are rocks exposed on the earth that are, you know, a, a couple of billion years old. Most rock is, is considerably younger than that, and there's a continual process of, of new rock being, being pushed up from, uh, from, from the mantle of the earth and so on. Um, but there is rock that is, I think, um, as I recall, a couple of billion years old because there are fossils that um, come from... Uh, when life first emerged on the Earth, which was probably maybe 2.6 billion years ago or something. On the moon, the the surface is original, so to speak, except where there's a crater because some something crashed into the moon. So that means that the surface of the moon is 4.6 billion years old, uh, give or take. So it's something where if you want to, you know, that there are things you can put on... Uh, the th rock lasts a really long time. There are things you can put that will last a long time. So, for example, uh, things like quartz, form of rock with etching in it, would last a really long time, for example, on the moon. Actually, there's a friend of mine who's had a project uh, to take um, random kind of uh, beacons of our civilization and put them around the solar system. Uh, even another group of people I know who are trying to get them into interstellar space, but um, uh, the, um, uh, the 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 question of what you put there. First question is: you need something where the actual sort of writing or whatever it is will survive uh, for a long period of time, and you can do that by etching things on things like quartz and on various kinds of metal. Um, and in fact, uh, there are even copies of, of books of mine in microscopic form etched into 
I guess it's a uh, it's some kind of metal disc that um, might have made it to the moon. I'll tell you the story of that in a moment. Um, the uh, and uh, there's some other things like that that made it uh, at least into the the trunk of the Tesla car that got launched into out into the into the solar system a few years ago. Um, but so that's the question of of what. Uh, the, the physical object, how long does it last? Well, the answer is you can probably have physical objects that last for billions of years if they're not in places that uh, have bad things happening to them. Now, there are some things that I know haven't gone quite so well, like, for example, on the Apollo missions, uh, there are these proud uh, American flags that got taken by the Apollo astronauts and, and put you know, on the moon. It's always a bit of a mystery. When you see a picture of a flag on the moon, the moon has no atmosphere, no air, and uh, a flag flutters in the air, you know, flutters in the wind. So how come the flag that's on the moon is, is nicely kind of uh, unfurled and, uh, um, and sort of uh, displayed with, with full flagness, so to speak? Well, the answer is it had to have a piece of wire at the top to keep it. Uh, in that configuration, because there's no air on the moon to be to be blowing the the flag out, but uh, I, I gather that it's believed at least that the the flags that were put there, the flag itself, the physical object, is absolutely still there after 50 years or whatever it is. Um, but the uh, the design of you know the stars and stripes and so on on the flag is gone. The thing will probably be white, and the reason for that is that the dyes that um, uh, were used to make the flag um, have been uh, the the there are enough uh, kind of cosmic rays and other things that hit the moon, charged particles mostly from the sun, electrons, protons, and so on, mostly from the sun, streaming out along with the light from the sun, hitting the moon, and those things destroyed the probably the dyes that were used in in that. It's the same kind of phenomenon um, as that if you have uh, books which are exposed to the sun, they will uh, gradually lose their color. Uh, usually the red dye goes first. Um, not quite sure why, actually. I think it may just be because of the chemistry of the red dye. Uh, maybe. Mm, probably that. But some thought required there. There, there may be, a, there may be a, an easier way to understand that. But in any case, so, so printing something in, in colored dye not a good idea if you want it to survive a long time. Even in 50 years on the moon, you know, hasn't survived. Uh, but you know, having a thing sort of uh, set in stone, so to speak, you can have that survive if nothing comes and sort of uh, destroys it. Could survive for a billion years potentially. Uh, you know, we see that in kind of the archaeological remains from, you know, a few thousand years ago, whether it's pyramids or whether it's, uh, you know, temples and things or, or other buildings from, um, uh, uh, from antiquity on, on Earth. The thing that's always struck me is that, you know, you go and look at uh, Roman ruins and things like that, and they have a certain form, and you kind of have this idea of that's kind of what the thing was like. But it's actually hard to imagine what uh, the... Uh, the city was like when it was really whole, so to speak, because there was a lot of stuff that was wood and a lot of brightly colored things, no doubt, that were there. And I'm sure it looked uh, all rather impressive and so on. I have to say, many, many years ago now, I lived in California for a while and uh, was in a place where the house I had was almost burnt down by a, uh, a fire, um, but 
the fire happened to miss uh, our house, but um, fortunately, um, but it burned down a lot of houses in the, in the area. And the thing that was really striking to me was, you know, I, I'd known what these houses more or less looked like when they were kind of whole, so to speak. But after this fire, you drove through this fire area and all that was left were a bunch of foundations of houses. And those foundations looked an awfully lot like the kinds of foundations that one sees when one looks at Roman ruins and so on. And so kind of the translation of what these houses looked like when they were whole versus what one was seeing post-fire kind of gives one some sense, sort of reversing that gives one some sense of how different the, these things in antiquity probably looked in, in real life. But in any case, so, you know, so we've got these things, they're kind of set in stone. And uh, then we ask the question, well, what does all these, what are all these squiggles on these pieces of stone, what do they mean? Can we understand them? And, uh, you know, there are places where people are very interested in that question for the future. For example, when people are uh, burying radioactive waste from nuclear reactors, you really kind of want a sign that says, keep out of here while it's still radioactive, and that might be 10,000 years. And so there's sort of a question of, can you make a sign that could plausibly be understood 10,000 years into the future, even assuming that sort of human civilization is not that different from the way it is today, in the sense that, you know, let's say going back 5,000 years, human civilization was sort of vaguely similar to what it is today. Well, that's challenging. And, you know, if one asks the question, what do these various things mean going back in the past, it's, it's really, really difficult. Uh, you know, I was really struck a few years ago. I happened to be in in Peru in um, visiting some archaeological site that is a very old um, site. I think it's one of the oldest places in the Americas that has kind of uh, existing archaeological remains. And uh, it was a rather abandoned site, actually. But but um, the person who was uh, showing us around, I kept on saying, you know, what was that thing for? And they would say it was for ceremonial purposes. Translation, and we have no translation from modern times to what on earth this thing was for. It is, you know, it's completely whatever was its purpose, that purpose is now lost to us. Culture has changed to the point where we, we don't understand what it is. And there are plenty of things we can imagine from the current time. I mean, I don't know, you could say, what's the... Uh, significance of, well, I mean, you could take the Eiffel Tower or the Washington Monument or something like that. What is it for? Well, it's, it's just a monument. Well, the Eiffel Tower wasn't. The Eiffel Tower originally was a great big ad for things like bridge building technology. Um, and, uh, you know, but that purpose is lost in that case. But it's really hard to have a translation of purpose. I mean, that's very short periods of time. It's hard to have this translation of purpose across sort of archaeological history. One of the more striking examples that I know of this is uh, there's a, a thing, I think it's in Aleppo in Syria. There's a, a, a sort of a, a wall which has paint still on it. It was in a cave. And um, the paint is black and red, and it's a bunch of squares. And the squares are in some arrangement. And it's like, what on earth is this? It's from 11,000 years ago. You know, what was somebody thinking when they made this? We have no idea. There are similarly, there are handprints in caves, painted paint handprints in caves. You know, are they just was was it just somebody who was or some group of people who were sort of randomly 
you know, dipping their hands in paint and sticking them on the edge of the cave? Or was the pattern of these hands some incredibly significant thing that related to some, you know, grand ceremony or some, some other thing that was happening there? We don't know. And the places where we kind of do know where there is, for example, language that's been, been passed down. Well, we have some idea when there's a representational picture of somebody, you know, hunting an animal or something, insofar as that representation has remained more or less constant to today, we can recognize it. And part of the reason it's remained constant is that when we draw a, a picture, we're not keeping sort of every pixel just like it was if we took a photograph. We are interpreting it and showing the edges much more strongly than we're showing the interior of things and so on. We're, we're kind of making a sketch based on the actual visual form that we see. But our biology has remained constant over very long periods of time, actually. And the ways that our eyes pick out edges and things like that have remained very constant. I mean, not just for humans, but, but going back probably hundreds of millions of years into evolutionary history, kind of the basic hardware that's been used to process images in our brains has remained pretty much the same. And that means that the, the picture that what somebody chose to highlight in into, at least in terms of you know making the outlines of the animals and things is pretty much the same as today. I could imagine something where somebody had drawn a a form of picture where oh I don't know you know some some pieces of of quotes modern art where in their moment people were knowing oh yes that's a reference to this cultural thing and it's a not a soup can but it's some other you know cultural reference of the day. And, uh, you know, it is not directly representational art. And at a different time, it will be completely lost what on earth that was referring to. Well, so, you know, there's a, there's a big challenge of sort of understanding across history what things mean. And I think that um, uh, the, um, the thing that um, um, is there are particular languages where we can see what this meant. And sometimes there are, there are challenges. And sometimes, uh, well, for example, hieroglyphics, the, the language of ancient Egypt, um, the, uh, uh, there was a question of how was that decoded? It was decoded in the 1800s. And a key thing was that the Rosetta Stone was found, which contained uh, the same passage uh, kind of given in three different languages. It's kind of like that was the early version of the machine learning way of learning language translation. In modern times, like between European languages, there are just, uh, you know, gobs of, of pages of EU regulations that are translated into the many languages of the European Union. And the fact that there is this sort of parallel text between those different languages is how the machine learning systems learn to do language translation. It's actually not just regulatory stuff from governments. It's also things like computer manuals and websites and so on that have been translated. But it's sort of amusing that the way that Egyptian hieroglyphs got decoded is really sort of the same idea, except that now it's billions of pages of text. Um, and then it was just one big you know, stone slab that's now in the British Museum, so to speak. Um, but you know, there were other forms of ancient writing that have been very difficult to decode, linear A, linear B from Crete, uh, was that was a big thing in what, the 1930s, 1940s, um, when that was when one of those was decoded, the other one has never been decoded, I can't remember which one is which. But, um, uh, and there are other 
places and things where we have things that sort of look like writing, but it's never been decoded what that means. And usually to have a sort of a decoding, you have to have kind of this thread of history that connects one back to that, that time, not only in terms of the writing, but also in terms of the concepts that are being expressed there. You know, I, I think I, I, I skipped over something I wanted to say, which was uh, about um, stuff that gets to survive for long periods of time. And I was mentioning the moon as a place where you can keep stuff for long periods of time, at least until the moon becomes a tourist destination and um, everybody's picking up all the artifacts and so on and saying, oh, this is really cool. It's been here for 200 years. Um, now I'll pick it up. Um, but uh, uh, if that's not being done, um, the uh, uh, then, uh, you know, in, in terms of just being there, if nobody's disturbing it, it will stay for a long time. I was mentioning that some some stuff of mine that was on these, uh, I guess they're metal discs, um, that might have made it to the moon. I should have explained what I mean by might have made it. And this was probably, when was it, 2018, I think? There was... Uh, a spacecraft, actually, an Israeli private spacecraft that um, was going to the moon, the Bereshit lander, and uh, it. Um, uh, uh, this friend of mine had managed to hitch a ride for the package from his, uh, it's called the ARCH mission, ARCH, A-R-C-H mission project of, of kind of delivering little packets of uh, material from our civilization um, to, to be stored in places around the solar system. Well, anyway, the, the package got put on the lander. Unfortunately, the lander uh, crashed into the moon at about, what was it, um, 2,000 kilometers an hour, I think. Um, the, uh, uh, the something, you know, when, when you're gonna land something on something like the moon, it's in orbit around the moon. It was in orbit around the moon. It has to, you know, when you're in orbit, you're going round at a certain speed. For low Earth orbit, it's like 17,000 miles an hour. Lunar orbit, I think it's 5,000 miles an hour, if I'm not mistaken, is the is the speed that you're going in sort of low lunar orbit. And in order to actually land on the moon, you have to stop going around and just uh, start going straight down, so to speak. And you have to go straight down and stop before you hit the surface. Well, unfortunately, in the case of this spacecraft, it seemed not to have managed to to sort of stop going around really fast, and it crashed into the surface at, uh, I think it was about 2,000 kilometers an hour, if I remember correctly. Um, and the question is, well, what happens to a spacecraft that uh, crashes into the moon at 2,000 kilometers per, per hour? And you might say it's, it doesn't have a hope, and uh, it'll be vaporized. And in fact, somebody I know who had had a rocket company, which had a, unfortunately rather unsuccessful launches, gave me the analogy of, imagine that you take the main gun from a battleship and you fire it a shell into a piece of concrete. That's the effect that you will have at that speed. Well, and so it seemed hopeless. Then actually a few weeks later, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which takes high resolution imagery of the lunar surface went by and it, it saw the, the landings, the crash site. And uh, I, I sort of got curious because we realized that, that because the thing was, was kind of going, uh, had not really deorbited the moon properly, it was still going at a very, it was still going sort of um, uh, skating along the surface of the moon at a high speed. It was going down, but it was also going along the surface very quickly. And I uh, found a, 
person who um, uh, is an expert in cratering um, and uh, asked uh, kind of what would actually happen. This was, I think, I think we worked out it was about a 15 degree angle, I think, when it hit the moon. Um, and, you know, what happens at that speed when you hit the moon? And, and we'd worked out there was a, a, a lost picture that had been taken um, of the lunar surface by the spacecraft. And from that picture, you can see the configuration of craters. You can figure out where that picture was taken. Then you can figure out where the crash site was from the pictures from the lunar, lunar reconnaissance orbiter. You can just make a line between those. You can see what the direction thing was going in. And so you can see when it hit the moon, where was it kind of skating along the surface of the moon? So I, I for various reasons, I, I think um, uh, uh, somehow I ended up doing the calculation of what would happen to a thing that hits the moon at that speed and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if, if all else, if it was just a thing that was going on the moon at that, at that speed and so on, you can work out based on the friction of a thing sort of just rolling along the moon, it would have gone for a couple of kilometers before it stopped, uh, assuming it didn't run into a boulder and go splat and so on. But anyway, the, the person who's an expert on cratering told me that at that angle, things just bounce. It, they don't, if they're coming in sort of straight down to the moon, yes, they just go splat and they make a crater. But if they are coming at that acute an angle, they kind of skid along the surface of the moon. And in fact, having knowing that, one can look at the pictures from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and one can see that, yes, there's this lovely ray that you can see in the picture, where which kind of goes out in exactly the direction you would expect from the crash site. Now, what makes that lighter ray? Not so clear, because the lunar surface is covered with this kind of sand-like stuff, lunar regolith, and um, uh, what makes the thing, when it's been sort of abraded, turn lighter wasn't totally clear. But it's at least uh, something was changed there. So anyway, the, the, the expectation is that the little package uh, of sort of interesting things from our civilization on, I guess, quartz disks and metal disks and so on, um, uh, probably actually survived the crash. And it probably skidded along the lunar surface and it's sitting somewhere, somewhere on the moon. Um, so in any case, the question of whether anybody will understand what's in it at any point in the future, if one goes, you know, uh, thousands of years into the future is a quite separate question. A lot of that question depends on the future of human civilization, which is quite a, a separate issue. But if we just ask sort of from history, what kind of thing would likely lead to that kind of sort of long time understanding? It's an interesting question. You know, people have done some slightly goofy things, in my opinion, along these lines. People, when the first spacecraft was sent into the outer solar system and beyond, there was sort of the question of what should you put on them that would kind of talk about how wonderful uh, our civilization is and so on. And so the uh, the pioneer spacecraft that are now, there are two of them, that are now far outside the solar system, and I guess we've lost contact with those particular spacecraft at this point. Um, the, uh, the right way around? Yeah, I think that that's, that's right. I launched like... 40-ish years ago. Um, the uh, Those spacecraft have these plaques on them, which were intended to kind of be a, uh, uh, well, you could say a thing where, uh, you know, on the spacecraft, it could say, you know, property of, 
the human species on planet X. But um, no, they were they were plaques that were intended to represent something about uh, the human human civilization and knowledge. I don't think they were terribly successful. Uh, I mean, of course, we don't know. Nobody's nobody uh, has come saying, "Oh, we found your plaques," uh, you know, and and this is what we think based on them. But um, they had a very strange representation of uh, uh, kind of the, the the solar system. And the position of a you know picture of a, a couple of people and things like this, and then I think one of the one of the worst parts of this plaque was there needed to be a way of representing distance uh, in order to kind of give a sense of if this if this spacecraft is found a billion years from now somewhere else in the galaxy, there's the question of where did it come from, and the uh, the idea was to show the position of the Earth by using the its position relative to pulsars, relative to neutron stars rapidly rotating well rotating neutron stars that produce intense radio emissions. And the uh, I actually now I'm wondering if you really waited a billion years, I'm sure those pulsars are all in completely different positions because. There's the rotation of the galaxy every every few hundred million years, and I I don't think it, it doesn't rotate rigidly enough. I think they end up in different places. So I'm I'm not even sure that that makes much sense. But assume the pulsars are still roughly in the same place. It's actually a thing people imagine using in the near term as a sort of uh, interplanetary GPS system because GPS is based on satellites in orbit around the Earth, and so if you're far away from the Earth. You don't get to use the, the you don't, it's not useful to use the terrestrial, even if you could pick up radio signals from them, those radio signals will just give you information from knowing the distance to the satellites in different places in Earth orbit. And if you're out in the orbit of, of, of Jupiter, for example, it doesn't really do you much good. So you have to use some more global way of, of telling where things are. And one thing you can do potentially is to uh, look at the directions to pulsars and that can tell you where you are in the solar system. But anyway, this was the this was a kind of pictorial version of that. And so one of the issues was to mark off what the actual distance to these different pulsars is. And there's a question of what what is the unit of length that you use. So the thing and I, I consider this the worst part of this plaque uh, was to make a specification of what the length was. Now you might have thought you would just draw a line of that length, or it might be the size of the spacecraft or something like this that would be the length measure, but no, it was not. Instead on this plaque, there's a picture uh, that shows um, kind of two circles and one of them has an arrow pointing up and one of them has an arrow pointing down. I think I'm remembering this correctly. Uh, and that's somehow supposed to indicate the uh, a, a, a measure of distance. Well, the problem is, what is that? Well, if you're a physicist from the 20th century and you were educated in quantum mechanics, you might possibly have seen book pictures a bit like that in quantum mechanics books. The, what that was supposed to represent is a phenomenon in quantum mechanics, the so-called hyperfine splitting of hydrogen. The, the, um, it is the, the thing that happens when you have electrons have a, a spin, they're, 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 they're little particles of charge with charge, 
and they also spin around on their axis, at least in some conceptual sense. And when protons do the same thing, when the protons and electrons and hydrogen atom are aligned, the hydrogen atom has one level of energy. When they're anti-aligned, it has a different amount of energy because it's like having bar magnets where the bar magnets, you, you the bar magnets like to arrange themselves. You know, nor, if this if one bar magnet is north is up, south is down for its poles, then you put a bar magnet next to it, it will like to be south is up, north is down. Same with electrons and protons. And so there's a an energy difference. And that energy difference, when a hydrogen atom makes a transition from one of those energy states to the other, it emits a photon, emits a photon that has is a radio frequency photon that has a wavelength of about 21 centimeters. And that picture was a representation of the electron proton spin flip transition, uh, you know, imagined to be emitting a photon of wavelength 21 centimeters. And so the the answer, you know, to the, the quiz, so to speak, was the measure of length was 21 centimeters. But the problem with that is that that whole representation of electrons with arrows and things like this is an incredibly human-specific, 20th century physics-specific interpretation, not least because the way electron spin works and so on, it's not really rotation. It's really, it's this notion of a spinner. It's a complicated kind of mathematical construct that it just happened to be a convenient thing to think about in terms of a direction and arrows and things. And that was the way it was first imagined in the 1920s, but doesn't necessarily have to work that way. In our model of physics, for example, the natural representation of that kind of thing would probably be something completely different. So it's a, to my mind, it's kind of a goof in terms of being able to represent uh, sort of something in a in a time invariant way because you're really locking it down to 20th century physics, which is presumably not the intergalactic standard of um, uh, of representation of physics. So then, well, then came the. Um, am I getting these the wrong way around? Which came first, Pioneer or Voyager? I'm I'm forgetting. Maybe maybe it's no. I think Voyager came second uh, as a deep space probe. Um, uh, I always used to be a big enthusiast of these spacecraft when I was a kid, but I think these ones were launched right after I was a kid. I knew I knew about the spacecraft, that the first spacecraft that went to Mars and Venus and places like that. Um, and I could no doubt tell you all about, uh, I haven't thought about it in, in uh, more than 50 years, but, but uh, you know, Mariner 4 spacecraft that went to Mars and so on. It's worth remembering just in terms of how history evolves that when I was a kid, let's say that spacecraft was probably 1965, 1966, something like that. Uh, people still were pretty convinced that there was life on Mars and that there were that one was seeing as the seasons on Mars changed, one was seeing the uh, uh, these different uh, vegetation colors showing up in different parts of the Martian surface. And it's worth remembering that that um, when the Viking landers landed in probably 1976-ish time frame, um, the maybe a little earlier than that, uh, many people were, you know, kind of expecting they would find microorganisms in the Martian soil. And the fact that you know people, it was generally thought it's probably the case that there's life on Mars. 
Um, and it was sort of, uh, uh, it's that recent that um, one sort of has thought that there probably isn't, uh, at least not in any form that can easily be recognized, so to speak. So, uh, but back to this question of, of sort of transmitting information over long periods of time. So in the Voyager spacecraft, there was a, um, uh, uh, let's show off the Earth's achievements. There was a, a, a record, a phonograph type record, um, you know, thing with, uh, uh, I don't even know how to describe this anymore. Cause it's like, I would say it's like a CD, but people might not even know what CDs are anymore. The um, uh, rotating um, thing that had little grooves in it that uh, uh, was the original way that record players, gramophones, whatever, worked um, back in, certainly when I was a kid, there will be plastic vinyl um, uh, records and um, they have little grooves in them in, the, in a big helix and there's a a a, a, um, uh, a stylus with a needle at the end, which would kind of ride around that groove in this helix. And depending on the height of the the the, the thing, would be sort of etched out. Um, and depending on the height at a particular place in that groove, you would get um, uh, different sound intensity. So, in any case, that was you know to somebody in the 1960s. 1970s even, a, a record player was a completely obvious kind of piece of technology. The stylus, it rides the helical, uh, helical grooves. It um, uh, you know, plays a sound based on the, the height. So on the Voyager spacecraft, there was a record that had recorded a bunch of music from around the world that was recorded in this kind of way. Okay. Well, in today's world, even right now, you know, 45, 50 years later, it's like a weird object. It's like, how do you play this thing? If I had one of these, uh, you know, you can obviously still get sort of traditional record players, but it's it's a dwindling kind of thing. It's a it's a it's a you know uh, buy it only as a retro kind of uh, kind of thing to do. And on that particular spacecraft. There was sort of a diagrammatic explanation of how you play the record. And I must say, I think it was, even in today, it's sort of incomprehensible um, because it sort of had an implicit assumption about, well, everybody knows how these, how these phonograph records kind of work. You know, to give a sense of the times, uh, when I was a kid, uh, probably age 15 or something, I happened to spend a week or two at a company in England that was uh, thinking about making video discs. Uh, this was at a time when there were, you know, there were uh, records that were, um, there were like, I think they had 33 revolutions per minute. Is that right? And then there were 78 revolution per minute, smaller records and so on. But the idea was to put, make a video disc where there would be uh, kind of um, uh the thing would be spinning fast enough, you could have enough data on it that you could encode the uh, the information for a video. The problem was that records had this habit, they're made of plastic, they had this habit of picking up static electricity. 
And so you would end up with this big static electric charge. And the problem was if you spin it very quickly, it's just a feature of, of moving charges that they produce, uh, they'll, they'll have, and the, with a current flowing through the stylus, they would have an a, a electromagnetic force on the stylus. And so depending on how much static electricity there was on the surface of the spinning video disc-like record, you would, you would have a certain different amount of force pushing the stylus up or not. And the problem was if something were to discharge the electricity that was on the surface of this record, the stylus would be pushed down with some force and wouldn't respond quickly enough. It would just grind itself into the record. So the question was, what were an early practical physics project of mine was uh, what, you know, to understand the static electricity and to even be able to measure uh, sort of where the static electricity was on the record. Was it at the surface? Was it somehow embedded in the interior of the plastic and so on? So I had this lovely experiment, which I, I'm not sure if it was ever done, um, that uh, involved figuring out by dissolving the record in some uh, very aggressive solvent, um, being able to figure out where the actual charge in the thing was. Um, but in any case, uh, in the end, the technology of video discs got built. The video discs were built for a short while, but they worked differently, and they didn't involve physical uh, uh, physically touching the surface of the disc. Um, they were involved a laser being able to just like like a CD, a laser just being able to well, and, and that was what how DVDs worked subsequently. Um, the uh, uh, a laser just seeing different um, um, uh, different um, uh, transparency of the material in different places rather than a physical thing riding on these grooves. But in any case, back to the question of how do you make something that people are going to understand 10,000 years in the past, 10,000 years in the future, whatever. Um, I think it's super challenging. You have, uh, uh, there are uh, there are all sorts of interesting examples. I, I wrote a piece a few years ago, actually, about this. Um, in connection with the original effort to send little sort of beacons of stuff around the solar system. It's like, what do you put there that has any hope of being able to be understood outside of our very specific uh, sort of point in, in the history of civilization? Uh, I mean, I, I should add that that the whole idea of, you know, the aliens are like us and they're going to be able to read this stuff, I, I, I really don't think is right at all. I think there's this kind of uh, distance between us as... Um, um the uh um uh the sort of us in our way of thinking about the universe and other ways of thinking about the universe that distance is quite great and it's uh, the the notion of what it counts to have as being sort of an alien i think is uh, intelligence is a very is very very messy one so i don't think it's i think the the question of sort of how far apart are the alien civilizations, both in physical space, like how many light years away in different stars and so on, plus how far away in what I call ruleal space, the sort of space of different interpretations of the universe are they? And if they're far away in the different interpretations of the universe, they can seem to us like something just completely incomprehensible. Um, but in any case, ignoring that issue, by the way, I see... Uh, a comment here that people commenting that vinyl records are becoming more common again. Okay, great. So then by the time somebody can go out and uh, 
um, you know, chase after the Voyager spacecraft and capture them, the 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 people will understand what um, the people who go do that will understand what the instructions for the record player um, actually actually meant. Um, in any case, the um, I think um, uh, it's um, so uh, talking about um, um, what um, um, it was kind of talking about what 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 you can do to make something that's understandable over long periods of time. Looking back at uh, archaeological history, uh, there are all sorts of places where people tried to sort of put messages for the distant future. I think one of the more interesting ones, well, 4,000 years ago or something now, in Babylonian times, for example, people who would build some, some big structure, a temple, a, a citadel, whatever it was, they would always put a message you know, in the foundations that said, Basically, to anybody who's destroyed this object, you know, uh, you're cursed, more or less. Um, you know, to to imagining that somebody will come in, as maybe they had in conquering some other place and destroy the structures there. It's like, well, when you destroy it right down to the bottom, you get to a, a message saying, you know, you, you're cursed, more or less. But people would put up... Um, uh, these different uh, um, these different things. There's, there's one famous one. Uh, let's see, Darius, king of the Persians, I think, had this big sort of uh, um, big. Well, not quite a plaque. It's it's on the side of a mountain somewhere in I think Iran now, um, where uh, it was kind of recited the 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 great acts. Well, at least the acts of conquest of this chap Darius. And I think it it begins, it's sort of a famous thing because it begins, you know, I am, I think, Darius, you know, king of kings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, the, uh, you know, in, in the kind of uh, cultural collection, there's this uh, Shelley poem that's about a somewhat different thing. It's about, I think that's about Ramesses II, an Egyptian king who, um, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a poem. I was like this one when I was a kid. Um, I don't know why I liked it. It's sort of sort of a downer of a, of a poem because it basically says that there's this, you know, there there was this giant statue. It's now in the desert, and um, uh, you know, I think the poem talks about two vast and trunkless legs of stone. So it's the legs are still there, and um, uh, and then. You know, somewhere at the at the base of this big statue or the former statue, is this um, uh, is this plaque. You know, I am Ozymandias. I think that was another name for Ramesses, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And of course, you know, this is a reference to the fact that uh, you know at the time that was intended to be. Look at all this great stuff I built. Nobody else will be able to match it, and by the time it's found archaeologically, so to speak, very little is left. And one could read that in a different way of the fact that it's, it's uh, you know, whatever empire there was there has crumbled. And so it goes with, with such things. But in any case, the, this, um, this kind of whole question of what do you put and, you know, what do you say? And, and even when you read kind of the, the thing, I think it was from Darius, 
um, this this whole sort of thing about his military conquests and all this kind of thing, it reads in a very silly way, in a sense, to us today. It's not it's not the way something will be written today, um, and you know, cultural difference uh, to that time. But I think in um, in this question of of even knowing sort of that something was put there on purpose, even knowing that this thing that you had that um, was a was an actual thing that had human thought put into it, so to speak, is not trivial. I mean, you know, you find a flint from a million years ago or something like this, and it's like, was this a flint that was carefully napped by some predecessor of ours, or is it just a flint that broke off from something and lay on the ground? And you see that quite a bit with people asking, you know, was this something made by, I don't know, even Native Americans from not that long ago, was this, you know, way that this this piece of uh, of earthwork was was organized. Actually, I remember when I was a kid in England, there were, uh, you know, you would see these pits in in woods particularly, and it was very unclear whether these pits were fortifications from Neolithic times, places where bombs had fallen in World War II, or something completely different, and you know it's very hard to tell what uh, whether this you know the mounds of earth that have been put there, uh, what what was kind of the the thinking behind um, what uh, uh, what was going on there. And I think it's a it's a very challenging thing to see when was their purpose in something. It's a this whole question about the identification of purpose and things is a is a very interesting philosophical and practical question. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of like asking. Uh, it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a version of was this thing done nefariously by somebody for some particular purpose, or did it just happen that way, or is there a uh, if you're kind of trying to find, you know, the lost city of Atlantis or something under the ocean somewhere, you know, and you're scanning pieces of the ocean, it's like, can you tell if uh, if that rock, you know, arrangement of rocks at the bottom of the ocean was actually the citadel of Atlantis or whether it was just a random pile of rocks um, produced by oceanographic or geological processes? So there are lots of interesting questions around that. Let's see. Um, let's see if there's some um, memes is commenting. I wonder how vinyl would hold up in um, uh, in space. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think um, I was just actually just talking to a friend of mine who's making some stuff that's going on a Jupiter probe, and um, uh, the the thing has it's an antenna assembly and it has epoxy resin in it. And they were just testing it by putting it so Jupiter has a very strong magnetic field and it collects it. A lot of charged particles from the sun get trapped in that magnetic field. So there's intense radiation around Jupiter. And um, so then the question is what happens to epoxy resin when it's put in intense radiation? So apparently they've been testing it by putting it next to a nuclear reactor somewhere, which has lots of radiation coming from it to see what will happen to epoxy resin. I, I, I don't know the answer but that would be some kind of proxy perhaps for knowing what would happen to a vinyl record in, in uh, uh, when bombarded with lots of cosmic rays and, and things like this. Um, let's see. Oh boy. All right, I'm gonna try and pick out some questions that are sort of related to things I've been talking about. 
Pequil asks, could the Earth ever get a second moon? What kinds of effects could this have? You know, the question one of my kids asked when they were very young was, um, when there were dinosaurs, could the Earth have had two moons? And I, I kind of use that as an example of a question that sounds really straightforward, but it's actually really hard to answer. And I think the answer to that particular question is, the Earth couldn't have had two moons 65 million years ago, but possibly a billion years ago, there could still have been another, another moon, which got um, maybe a couple of billion years ago, there could have been, um, that got torn out of the orbit and uh, uh, or crashed into the moon as the moon is. Um, and uh, uh, you know something did crash into the moon because one part, one side of the moon is really very different from the rest of the moon. Um, and the theories about how the moon formed, the, the, the big splat theory seems to be the popular one, that something crashed into the Earth. The Earth, you know, a lot of stuff got vaporized, got, got uh, uh, liquefied. It all went out into space. One piece of it condensed into the moon. One another part of it is, is, is the Earth and so on. But um, uh, this question of whether one could have had a second moon that got uh, sort of ripped away from the Earth by something uh, or or crashed into the moon, for example, um, is still kind of an open question if you go far enough back. Could the Earth capture another thing that is a moon-like thing? Well, the main problem is things that just sort of wander by tend to be going pretty fast. You know, if you're, it is the nature of mechanics, Kepler's laws in particular, that if you're a certain distance from the sun, you're going to be going at a certain speed to maintain yourself in orbit. So you're either in orbit or you're not in orbit. If you're not in orbit, then how come you're still around at all? Why didn't you just fall into the sun, you know, billions of years ago? If you say, well, what about something that came from another solar system, for example, an interstellar uh, meteorite or whatever else, or interstellar, uh, you know, asteroid or something like this? The issue with that is, if you tend to be, you're not captured into the into orbit around the sun, you're going at a very high speed. So this Oumuamua thing that was observed oh, a few years ago, this very elongated object was, what was it, five, five years ago or something, a little bit more than that maybe now, that was observed transiting the solar system, going through the solar system. The one way one knew that it probably came from outside the solar system was it was just going too fast. It wasn't something that was in orbit around the sun. So in order to be something that gets captured by the Earth, you have to be going fairly slowly to be able to be captured. You know, the, the, the moon is going at a certain speed. In order to be captured into orbit with the Earth and the moon, you have to be sort of going slow enough that you can be captured that way. If you did get captured, if, a, if an object of significant size did get captured that way, it would have all kinds of effects. I mean, the the uh, I would say, by the way, that the orbit, the Earth and Moon are kind of strange in our solar system, at least, for being a planet and its moon of fairly comparable size. Most, most moons of planets are really tiny compared to the planets. In our case, the Moon is pretty big compared to the Earth. And that means that when you look at orbits, uh, so if you're orbiting the Earth in low Earth orbit, you're just going around the Earth, it's all good. Even going around the Moon is not trivial because there are effects from the gravity of the Earth at the position of the Moon that make it not be the case that what would be kind of a stable orbit around the Earth, because there's not so much effect of the Moon's gravity because the Moon is enough smaller than the Earth, 
those orbits are not stable around the moon. And so I, I don't think, I don't know what the, um, uh, it's, it's a much more complicated story. And as you get to sort of high lunar orbit, it gets even more complicated. And this question about sort of how do you keep yourself in stable orbit around the Earth and the moon, very non-trivial question. And it's not clear that things stay that way. There are things that kind of uh, end up sort of um, little asteroids and so on that end up being sort of captured by the Earth for brief periods of time, but they don't stick around very long. So I guess that those must be going, yeah, those must be rotating along with the Earth. I am not quite sure how that works exactly. They must be migrating from the asteroid belt to the to the position of the Earth, um, but, but sort of co-rotating with the Earth uh, around the Sun and then getting briefly captured by the Earth and then and then escaping from, from orbit around the Earth subsequently. And I, I don't know how long they last, maybe years or a few years or something, um, small objects that are captured that way. Uh, there's also the whole question about, uh, which I always enjoy just for its name, the moon-moon question of whether there can be things that are, you know, just like the Earth is going around the sun, the moon is going around the Earth, can you have a moon-moon that's going around the moon? And as I just explained, it's kind of hard to have a stable orbit for one of those. Um, but I think it's more possible probably for other planets to have such a thing. And obviously, when you have an artificial satellite, you can think of it as you know going around the moon. You could think of it as a moon-moon in that case. Let's see. There's a question here. Uh, um, from Gist. What should we do today to help the survivors reboot civilization after a cataclysmic event? You know, I think it's perhaps interesting to look at human history so far and ask the question of, of how that's worked. And, well, it hasn't worked very well. I mean, I think that insofar as there's knowledge, for example, for antiquity, that uh, you know, was from ancient Greek times and so on. There were all these books that were written about science, mathematics, whatever else, literature, and so on. And, uh, you know, how did they survive? Well, they survived mostly in the Arab world, you know, being copied progressively, sort of being kept in, in storage, so to speak, by being progressively copied and then surviving to modern times. But there's not a lot, I think, where it's just like, oh, it was found many years later. I mean, I, the one that comes to mind is the Dead Sea Scrolls is an example of something which is found many years later. And actually, there are other examples of, um, of works from antiquity which were sort of lost. I mean, I think uh, Cicero, for example, famous orator and essayist and so on from antiquity, uh, Roman uh, one, I think it was believed that none of his works had survived and then sometime maybe a couple of hundred years ago, uh, somebody found in some, you know, stored in the Vatican Library was were, were these works. Um, and so they've been kind of lost through just being misplaced, so to speak. But I, I think this, you know, the, the, the continuation of knowledge um, is, is quite non-trivial. It really has to be a thread of, of uh, sort of progressive passing down of knowledge from, from one generation to another. I think, you know, when we look at something like the Antikythera device, this kind of clockwork computer device from around uh, 2,000 years ago, there's just one example of such a device from antiquity. 
Uh, nobody really knows. I mean, it's now known how that particular one worked. It's been sort of decoded what it was. It's some astronomical computation thing done with essentially clockwork. But the in the intervening years and until modern times of computation, it would have been hard to interpret that thing. And, you know, I think that's an example of even if you find it and it was found sort of by chance um, around the 1950s, I guess, uh, the um, uh, it's still, you know, out of its cultural context, it's really hard to interpret. I mean, if it had been found in 1700, it would have been much harder to interpret what the thing was. The uh, So, you know, I think it's pretty challenging to have things that where you can do a cold reboot, so to speak. It's one thing where you have a continual thread of knowledge that's been passed down. You know, in a sense, that was the point of the universities starting in the 1200s and you know, in, the, in earlier times, there were things like Plato's Academy from from fifth uh, century, fourth century BC. Um, the uh, but but you know the the sort of the original point in a sense of the universities was passed down knowledge from one generation to another. I sometimes think that that's been a little bit lost sight of in some in some cases in modern. Uh, in modern academia, but that is a, a pretty useful thing to do to sort of keep civilization, uh, uh, you know, by, by the time people say, let's just forget about the historical knowledge, that's kind of a mistake, because that is that is the, uh, the kind of, um, uh, that is what our civilization has, is this whole long thread of historical knowledge. But I think that the, um, uh, you know, being able to do the cold reboot seems really quite challenging, not least because if you have, you know, you've got a laptop and there's been some cataclysmic event on the earth and you've just got this laptop, but it has a whole complicated chain of things. You need electricity to, you know, to power the laptop. You need to be able to, oh, I don't know, maybe the um, uh, all kinds of things that, you know, you, you boot the thing up and it's like, hello, where's the internet? Um, and, you know, the internet is, is long gone. There's a whole, you know, things, these technologies and these things we rely on tend to sit on top of a pretty large network of, of, uh, of capabilities. And it seems it's quite challenging. I mean, it's the same reason that, you know, in different countries, it can be difficult to get to the point where you are manufacturing laptops, for example, because there just needs to be an awful lot of stuff underneath that to sort of support that activity. And I think the same is true with just the uh, the unidentified sort of um, uh, preserved laptop, so to speak, is probably not enough. Even if you knew to open the thing up and press the power button, it's like, well, you've got to have this whole infrastructure to support it. Um, let's see. Uh, Harry comments that they've liked the idea of putting... Wikipedia and other literature in glass and sending it on thousand-year orbits for future generations. Yeah, there are, well, as I say, this this Arch Mission project has tried to put it in things in the solar system and uh, and things on the moon and so on. Um, I think it's uh, uh, it's an interesting little little challenge. If you could imagine, it's kind of like the 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 time safe, where you say, you know, the safe can't be opened until seven in the morning or something. 
And what's the analog of that on a larger scale? Well, one analog would be you put a bunch of stuff in a spacecraft into some kind of orbit that's a bit like a comet, where it goes out to the outer solar system and then comes back in 100 years or something like that. And um, you could imagine sort of having things where it's like, let me give you, send you a reminder. You know, it's gone for 200 years, then it reappears in Earth orbit, and um, uh, hopefully people notice it. And and then it's like, oh, I'm back again, and, and here's the stuff to look at. Kind of reminds one of these kind of time capsule type things. I, I did a little bit of a study of time capsules where people sort of store stuff to be found many years later. The story of time capsules is truly dismal. People, at when they build buildings, when they have events like World's Fairs and things like that, there's a habit that people have had of let's put a box of interesting artifacts from the current time in there. Let's bury it in some foundations. Let's do this or that to it. And then let's, you know, people will find it in a few hundred years. The 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 story of that has has not been good. Most of those things end up being in horrible disrepair um, and uh, uh, not necessarily to be found in the in successfully in the future. And I'm just trying to remember there was one. Oh yeah, I, I I'm um, uh, just a funny story. There was a well-known mathematician physicist named John von Neumann who died in 1956 or 1957, and who I had heard the um, the sort of the, the claim that he put aside this box that was supposed to be opened 50 years after his death. And um, I happened to be talking to his daughter, who um, uh, said yes, and, uh, actually just before the time when that 50 years would be up. And then um, the uh, um, and I was sort of asking later what happened with the box, and she told me it was a big bust. They'd assembled sort of all the descendants. They were going to open this box, and it turned out it wasn't even a box from the person they thought it was a box from. So it was a it was a big bust, so to speak. But that's unfortunately, you know, these sort of time capsule ideas have a terrible habit of of not panning out in a good way. I could give you a lot of other examples, um, some rather um, of, of, of sort of failures in the, in the effort to have these very long time things um, uh, sort of, uh, and, and usually the issue, as I say, is this sort of, this lack of, of, in a sense, cultural connection between what happened then and what's happening now. Um, and I think that is, you know, it's a little bit of a, a sobering thing to realize that we live in sort of a, a particular time and transporting us to different times, you know, it, it's, it's, it's challenging to see how one, how one sort of fits in. Um, Aaron is asking, have you considered printing chunks of orphan language or something onto something like microfilm just as a fun artifact or toy? Actually, that has been done. I even have one somewhere here. I don't know, I could probably find it. Um, that uh, was a copy of the of the stuff that was uh, sent to the moon and other places. Um, it's done with uh, some something similar to, uh, well, it's sort of a photolithography technique, similar to the one used for making microprocessors. Um, but in this case, it's just taking writing and making it very small. Um, Oh, Philip is asking, is the fact that the moon exactly covers the sun during an eclipse just a coincidence? The answer is yes. 
the moon is progressively moving further away from the earth and it will no longer cover the sun in in a while um and uh in in earlier times the moon was closer to the earth and it would have uh, more than covered the sun so the fact that we live at a time in history when in the history of the earth when the moon just about covers the sun with little tiny bits sticking out around the edges during a total eclipse well really nothing sticks the actual disk of the sun is covered but there are prominences that you can sometimes see um beyond the disk uh it's a coincidence of our times and the dinosaurs would have seen it differently and uh in the future it will be it will be different and for example in most other planets you know their moons are really tiny compared to the sun uh, like in mars for example its moons are really tiny compared to uh See, compared to the sun, even yeah, even at that distance, right? Um, all right, I need to get going soon here, but um, let's see, there's maybe one more. Uh, astronomy is commenting here. Detecting the signatures of technology of other civilizations will be very difficult or impossible if they don't want to be seen easily. Stealth and camouflage is a survival tactic in the wild. Yeah, you know, I just think that the sort of philosophical aspects of what it means to have an alien civilization are very complicated. I mean, you know, the, the quote that I'm fond of giving is, you know, the weather has a mind of its own. It has computational processes going on that are not that different, perhaps, from the computational processes going on in our brains. But yet, we are not well aligned with the the computation, the intelligence of the weather. So to us, it's a it's a deeply alien kind of thing. The interesting case right now is AIs and the alignment of sort of the intelligence of AIs with, with human intelligence and the fact that we've created the AIs for the purpose of replicating human intelligence gives a certain degree of alignment. But we can also perfectly well, you know, you take a neural net, you take ChatGPT and you scramble its neural net weights. And it'll go yak, 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 and it'll say something. It'll get this random sequence of words, and it'll be like, somebody might say that's brilliant sort of modern poetry made by the, the chat GPT that has evolved far beyond our human capabilities with its scrambled uh, neural net weights. Um, or we might just say it's nonsense. And distinguishing those is quite difficult because, you know, the thing will do something. Now, the question of saying, is that something, something that we consider interesting or, you know, a sign of intelligence, it's it's got the same. Let, let's take that thought experiment. Uh, you know, ChatGPT has 175 billion weights, basically, uh, all carefully tuned based on the trillion or so words of actual text that it's read from the web and other places. But, you know, with those weights, it will, you give it a prompt, it will start trying to continue that prompt in a way that is like what it has read on the web. So, you know, if every sentence that starts, the cat sat on the mat, if every sentence it read on the web has the word mat in that position, if you type in the cat sat on the, it's going to say, okay, I know how that goes on. It's mat. I read that from the web. And that, that, fact is encoded in all of those weights inside the neural net. Well, now let's say we come in, we scramble the weights, or maybe we don't scramble them. We use some incredibly brilliant algorithm that 
does something very notable. I won't say clever, but notable to those weights. Then we do the cat sat on the, and it says moon, for example, next. And we're like, we could say, that's just crazy. That's nonsense. Or we could say, okay, you know, you just evolved to some new state of intelligence where, you know, it keeps going. The cat sat on the moon where, I don't know what, make up some, you know, where the, uh, I don't know, it's hard to make up nonsense. We're all programmed to, um, uh, to kind of follow language in the way that we're used to language. Um, so it's, it's actually hard to start generating kind of pure nonsense stuff uh, immediately. But in any case, the, you know, we can certainly imagine that. And then the question is, if we look at that thing, that alien intelligence that wasn't perfectly aligned with sort of human uh, language and human text, it's like, what does that mean? Is that, is that an alien intelligence or is it a scrambled neural net that is just broken? Who knows? Hard to tell. You know, we have plenty of examples. You could point to examples of, I don't know, various forms of modern art, for example, where you say, is that just a splotch of paint? Or is that some very meaningful thing that has uh, some great significance for people? Often, to know the answer to that, you kind of have to have lineage. You have to have the the you have to know how did it get to that splotch of paint? What was the story that the artist would tell about that splotch of paint? And so, in the case of uh, you know when you have this sort of scrambled neural net, if there was a big story about how it got scrambled, maybe you could have a better idea: is that a brilliantly scrambled neural net, or is it a random broken neural net? But I think it's 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 a very um, very challenging thing to kind of recognize what it means to have sort of a an example of intelligence. And we have this well, we have this good example of alien intelligence in 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 AI and so on. And we could make it even more so by taking the bits of the AI and sort of scrambling them in some way. Then the question is, if you're an alien intelligence and you want to be found, do you not want to be found? Is there even a meaning to the question of being found or not? You know, if it's the case that, oh, what's a good example? I mean, you know, the, the AI system that's just running this computation and you know, does it want to be, does it, quotes want to be found? It's not clear it wants anything. We can put, as humans, we can kind of project our experience of wanting being associated with things, but that's not something that we can say intrinsically, this bag of bits wants this thing. That's a, the, the notion of wanting something is a human notion. We can say the bag of bits behaves as if it wants such and such a thing, but it's, it's, it's a, it's an internal human notion when we talk about wanting things. At least that's the way it, it, we talk about it today. Maybe in the future, when you know AIs are well integrated into civilization, and we have you know we have the humans, we have the AIs. Everybody's living hopefully happily ever after, and um, the uh, uh, you know the AIs have their own sort of intrinsic behavior, they have their own sort of civilization of the AIs, then there's sort of the question of that, then you perhaps can, can then the word want might actually be applied. We might choose in the future to take the word want 
and actually apply it to the AIs that are sort of autonomously existing in the AI civilization, or we might have a different word. We might have, you know, I want, I, a want or something for an AI wanting something different from the human notion and feeling of wanting something. Um, anyway, I tend to think that um, uh, this question of, um, I think it's too much of a human reading of things to talk about sort of would an alien intelligence quotes want to quotes camouflage itself. Um, you know, I think I think the challenge, uh, it's it's kind of um, what's a good analogy. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, um, you know, let's take the weather as an example of an alien intelligence. Um, what would it even mean for it to sort of camouflage itself? It's pretty it's pretty well hidden as it is right now in terms of its sort of intelligence, because it's like, well, that's just you know, these processes of air moving around in the atmosphere, just like somebody could come and look at us and say, that thing you're talking about that you call intelligence, that's just a bunch of nerve cell firings in that, in that um, you know, thing you have on the top that's called a brain. You know, it's very hard to distinguish that sort of the physical processes going on in brains from the physical processes that go on in the atmosphere, except that for us, we're deeply connected to what happens in brains, and that is for us the inner experience that we have, as opposed to the the, the other case. Um, Natter is commenting: the topic of consciousness should be explored further. You know, I I have um, I have to say that I've I've kind of I've always avoided the topic of consciousness and thinking about scientific things because it's always seemed to me that it's very hard to have anything. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sort of used to science that's built step by step, kind of on bedrock and sort of building it up in a very solid way. And it's always seemed hard to do that when one's talking about consciousness. But in recent times with our physics project, it became clear to me that that the way that we observe the universe is critical to our perception of how physics works. Uh, the fact that we are, for example, computationally bounded, we don't get to follow all of the micro computations that are happening in the universe. We just have some aggregate statement about it. And also the fact that we believe we're persistent in time. We think we experience time through a sort of single thread of experience. Those two things determine our way of perceiving physics. Without those things, we would perceive physics vastly differently. So if we imagine the aliens, if they don't have those attributes, they will necessarily perceive physics in a different way. Also, if they don't have those attributes, good luck to us in communicating with them because we just won't have any shared sort of experience base and shared set of things to talk about. But I think the, um, so this is sort of an application of the idea of consciousness is there are these attributes that are true of observers like us that exhibit our inner perception of consciousness and those that sort of observers like us sort of cause physics to be observed the way we observe it and cause the laws of physics to be the way the way that we observe them to be. I think it's a, uh, there are all sorts of interesting questions about whether sort of the single thread of experience, how that plays out, how that plays out in AIs, um, what, uh, what kind of inner experience kind of AIs have? You know, I was I was writing a thing which I fortunately didn't finish. I'll finish it hopefully soon. Um, uh, just for fun, I was kind of trying to write about what is the inner experience of a modern computer. Uh, 
you know, a computer, we humans, we, you know, are born, we learn a bunch of stuff, we live our lives, we die, maybe we've passed on a certain amount of information to future generations. It's sort of a little bit like that for every boot cycle of a computer. You start the computer up, it boots, it takes the, the knowledge from its predecessors, so to speak, from its previous lives. It comes, it, it runs the computer for a while, maybe it runs for a few weeks, then the operating system crashes, it quotes dies, and then it's sort of reborn from the same, from the same information. Maybe in its life, so to speak, it has, it has built up certain memories Maybe some of those memories it's committed to a form that will be passed to sort of future generations of the computer, so to speak. But a lot of, if you start thinking about sort of the inner experience of just a regular computer, not even some kind of fancy AI, nor that kind of thing, just a regular computer, and you say, what is the, the sort of the inner perception? If you can imagine, you know, it's a bag of bits, just like our brains are just a bag of electrically operating neurons, so to speak. So, you know, you can kind of ask, what is the inner experience of the computer? And actually, it's, it's bizarrely similar to our inner experience. Um, it's, uh, you know, as you, as you see from the outside, what would it experience? If you imagine it has an inner experience, it's bizarrely similar to ours, kind of almost shockingly so. And it makes one sort of realize that there's that this 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 feeling we have from the inside, so to speak, is really just a feeling from the inside. And it's not the case that we can't we look at something else and we say it couldn't possibly have a feeling from the inside. Well, not based on what it looks like from the outside compared to what we look like from the outside. All right, I think I should wrap up here and um uh Lots of interesting topics. I see that there are many, many questions that I didn't get to. My apologies. Um, I'll have to do that another time. So should wrap up here. Thanks very much. And see you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.